Hello and welcome to Stump Death and Taxes. This is me, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary, and today I'm talking about lying. About lying. This is a story that goes back over 10 years for me, and I've written about it on the blog before, and I've written various articles for actuarial newsletters. So I'm going to give you the nutshell version. So back in February 2013, I wrote an article called Everybody Cheats, at least just a little bit. And it was a review of Dan Ariely's book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And you're going to see why I'm laughing. I just actually, I don't trust anything in that book now. And you'll see why. There was an example I wrote about in that article. And I should have taken a hint from that book. So I'm going to read from that article. So I did this review. Um, so reading from my review from February, 2013, let me approach that final example as Arioli uses an experimental example straight from the world of insurance. Like many forms, especially tax, one generally fills out an insurance application and then at the end signs a statement attesting that all the information above is truthful. Ariely wanted to check the effect of having people sign such a statement before filling out an auto insurance application. Specifically, he looked at the part of the self-reporting miles driven per year, as more miles driven results in higher premiums, usually. The result, those with the form with the attestation at the top, reported on average 2,400 fewer miles driven than those who had the attestation in the standard place, the bottom. This was about a 9% reduction, which reflects the marginal aspect of normal cheating. Read the book to find out what the insurance company did with these results. You will likely not be surprised. Well, I should have been surprised because you know what? A 9% difference, and that's 9%, not 9 percentage points, actually could have made some profitability uh, differences because, of course, auto insurance, personal auto insurance, is a very competitive market. I should have been more suspicious. In 2021, Data Colada, uh, some people at Data Colada, which is uh, kind of a data science company, and they have a blog, they've been, you know, investigating various data files from open science projects, so where people post the data that go into their research and they investigate various things because you may or may not have heard there is a replication crisis in science or specifically social sciences, especially these kinds of experiments. Um, and I'll get back to that in a bit. So these data collata people, they tried to uh, replicate the the experiment. So additional uh, researchers, they tried to do this experiment themselves separately. And then the data collada people took the original files and investigated them. Uh, they looked at 
the files, which were Excel files, and found some interesting items. So now I'm going to my 2021 article from November 2021, which I named Distrust and Verify. So um, the anomalies they found, and they had a blog post, and I'll provide the link, of course, in the show notes. Uh, the anomalies, such as indications that a uniform pseudo-random number genera- generator, PRNG, was used to generate odometer readings, pointed to data falsification. But the part that cracked me up, so the most hilarious tell was that two different default Excel fonts, so Excel is the Microsoft Excel spreadsheet uh, application, were used in the files. Half the data used Calibri, which is the default sans serif font, so without the little pointy bits in Microsoft Office applications, and that's usually the default font in Excel. And half the data used Cambria, which is the default serif font, so that has all the pointy bits. It seems like the original data were in Calibri. Somebody copied the data over and then used a PRNG, to add to those numbers to try to hide the falsification and somehow switch the font while doing so. Perhaps they had switched the font so whoever doing the falsifying could eyeball the original versus the copy. So if you're a detail-oriented person, um, it actually can kind of leap out to you whether it has the pointy bits on, say, certain letters like T or I. Um, You'll notice if there are pointy bits or not. Uh, and the, the, the issue is, of course, these data colada people, and I have more details, of course, are detail-oriented people. So to quote the data colada authors, we have worked on enough fraud cases in the last decade to know that scientific fraud is more common than is convenient to believe, and that it does not happen only on the periphery of science. A field that ignores the problem of fraud or pretends that it does not exist, risks losing its credibility, and deservedly so. So I'm going to quote myself from my own article. I should have known to have been suspicious of the claim that those short-sighted insurance companies ignored the oh-so-wise scientists and their results. Insurance companies do not leave money on the table without good reason. Yes, some individual insurers do less than optimal things, but the entire industry generally does not without consequences. If insurers were underpricing risk, especially in an industry as short-tailed as personal auto, it would become rapidly clear. So no, there wasn't one neat trick that insurers could do and get more truthful odometer readings from drivers. As it is, many insurers have developed ways to directly measure not only how many miles someone drives, but where they're driving and how erratically they drive. That's a far better measure of the risk involved than moving a signature line on an insurance application. So this is my first lesson from this episode, distrust and verified. Verify. So, and I didn't look at the files themselves. I mean, I did spot check a couple of the things they mentioned, um, but in general, I am trusting these fraud researchers that they did what they said they did because of the motives involved. And this is the main thing to think about when looking at the fraud. What is, what are the motives for the academic researchers 
And what's the motives for the insurance companies? And what's the motive for the people that they're giving these surveys to or they're trying the applicants and that kind of thing? So uh, a default for trying to include findings from outside actuarial work should be distrust and verify. There are many different motives involved in publishing research, whether it's academic or otherwise. And I should have remembered that. Um, so at the time, so that's 2021, and they've continued their research, and I'm about to read from recent postings so from 2023, um, and they're still in the middle of it, and I'm going to continue. I mean, they've done some really interesting work on other Excel files from other research of what they've been able to get at, and it gives, for those of us who work in Excel, it gives us some more tools of things we can look at if somebody's been messing with our files or if somebody has given us files and we are suspicious of whether they've been tampered with of how we can look at it. Of course, now that others know how we can investigate files, they may be able to hmm, like bleach bit it, as it were, um, to make sure it looks clean. But hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, yeah, that's why like give, give your data files only in CSV format, then you don't have all of these artifacts that are hanging on to the data. Okay. So in the insurance business, there are repercussions for denying reality. So in business, and this is why I really enjoy doing uh, business research, and I'll talk about what kind of research I do in a moment. In business, a negative result, finding that there is no there there, is a positive result. When you realize there's a factor that doesn't make a difference, you can safely ignore it leaving out of your models and your operations. So I've often been the person checking arguments that certain dimensions were driving results. Through various modeling projects I've been involved in, I've had access to policyholder transaction files, this is for annuities, and could test out proposed models directly. These past two years, so I wrote this in 2021, sorry about that, I've been dissecting various COVID-related data sets, testing out different hypotheses. When I find out that something people think is driving result actually shows no correlation whatsoever, that's a publishable result for me, especially if it's a correlation that many people think does exist. If the lack of correlation is real, that is something insurers need to know. But in academia, it is difficult to publish a paper that says, we hypothesize that treatment A would make a difference and there was no difference between the default and treatment A, even if it is true. And even if other people would like to know that information, academic journals do not want to publish these negative results. That there's no difference is boring. But boring is the nature of actuarial work, or rather when actuarial work gets really interesting, that's generally a bad time for everybody involved. Okay, no, so I was kind of kidding about actuarial work being boring. However, you know, to most people outside, it sounds boring. I trusted published academic results too much, and I ignored the practical real-world examples of insurers in light of this supposed true result. The margin in the printed research was a 9% difference. Imagine personal auto insurers were underpricing auto by 9%. Ouch. You know, um, 
So, of course, and so I had a footnote on this. So, of course, as PNC actuaries know, pricing in the PNC, and that's property and casualty, property and casualty world is also hugely driven by the competitive environment. So hard versus soft pricing cycles can often have an amplitude swapping out this 9% difference. So this is a term of art of whether we're generally overpricing or underpricing the insurance of uh, whether we're kind of losing money or uh, making a lot of money on the insurance and personal lines. So that's auto and home insurance are huge business in the United States. And you can have hard pricing that's it's often in auto more than home. But when you see news stories about insurance companies leaving a state and in the United States, insurance markets are on a state by state basis, though within a state, it can even be like on a county by county or zip code by zip code or certain areas. It depends on the state. But insurance, and I'm not going to explain it right now, in the United States is regulated on a state basis, not a federal basis. So uh, when an insurer is deciding to do business, it has to deal with regulators in a state. Um, so you may have heard about insurers withdrawing from, say, California due to wildfire risk. Or sometimes you may hear about um, state, uh, sorry, insurers coming out of Florida because of hurricane risk, say. Um, now that's not been recent, I believe, but I'm not a property and casualty insurer, so don't ask me about that. You don't hear this on life insurance as much because that's regulated in a different matter. It's still on a state basis, but you don't get uh, the kind of fluctuations in regulation and pricing like you do with property and casualty insurance. You'll hear stuff about tort reform, um, and that does affect auto insurance and home insurance, but also other liability like medical liability insurance. You'll hear about that as well. So back in 2021, I wrote that there had been small consequences for Dan Ariely and his co-researchers so far. They had to retract at least one paper and maybe there were other papers at the time. That is no longer true. There have been recent consequences for one of the other researchers. And so that is what I, why I'm coming back today in 2023, even though this came down in 2021 when Data Collada found the initial uh, fraudulent, you know, messing around with the data. So the, I'm sorry, the fonts are the easier thing to explain, explaining why the um, odometer readings looked iffy. That's harder to explain. But now we've got a more recent posting about other, not just the insurance uh, related research, but I believe it's four studies um, involving Harvard Business School professor, possibly ex-professor Francesca Gino. And she is on administrative leave currently, I believe. Um, they had to go to uh, an archive I mean, a Wayback Machine posting uh, for her page so that you could actually see it. And uh, of course, <laughs> the 
part that everybody is kind of grimly chuckling over is what is her featured work on her page for Harvard Business School, but a book called Rebel Talent with the subtitle, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. So let me read the description of this book. Rebels have a bad reputation. We think of them as troublemakers, outcasts, contrarians, those colleagues, friends, and family members who complicate seemingly straightforward decisions, create chaos, and disagree when everyone else is in agreement. But in truth, rebels are also those among us who change the world for the better with their unconventional outlooks. Instead of clinging to what is safe and familiar and falling back on routines and tradition, rebels defy the status quo. They are masters of innovation and reinvention, and they have a lot to teach us. Well, you know, that may be true. However, <laughs> you know, having potentially falsified research is not a good look. Unfortunately, this is the problem. Um, what are the, you know, what are the incentives in academia now? Um, the kind of research I had been in, in applied math, is nothing you can falsify in terms of, I was modeling neurons. Now, I had data sets I was getting from the neuroscience department in terms of real neurons, um, and I suppose that data could be falsified in some way to make my models work better. However, my models weren't working at all. <laughs> because my numerical integration wasn't working. Um, I mean, I suppose I could have faked it somehow, but for crying out loud, I, yeah, I wasn't going to do that. Come on. Jeez. Oh, anyway, um, but it's different in like this social science world where you have surveys and you're surveying humans. So let me tell you about the recent investigation by the data collada people of the first two parts. So they are promising four parts that they're going to post. The first post, data falsificata, so the cluster fake, um, was posted June 17th, 2023. And this is all research involving Francesca Gino. Um, and again, they did all the work. I am just picking a couple different things that they are writing about. And the first one is related to the auto insurance company signing at the beginning or signing at the end. So let me read from their post, part one, cluster fake. So two summers ago, we posted a, we published a post, and this is the one I was talking about before that was about the auto insurance company. And they showed data were fabricated with the Cambria Calibri and the number of miles driven and all of that. So the auto insurance field experiment was study three in the paper that they covered. It turned out study one's data in that paper was tampered with, but by a different person. That's right. Two different people independently faked data for two different studies in a paper about dishonesty. So study description, participants in equals 101 received a worksheet with 20 math puzzles and were offered $1 for each puzzle they were reported to have solved correctly within 
five minutes. After the five minutes passed, participants were asked to count how many puzzles they solved correctly and to then throw away their worksheet. The goal was to mislead participants into thinking that the experimenter could not observe their true performance when in fact she could because each worksheet had a unique identifier. Thus, participants could cheat and earn more money without fear of being caught, while the researchers could observe how much each participant had cheated. Participants then completed a, quote, tax form reporting how much money they had earned and also how much time and money they spent coming to the lab. The experimenters partially compensated participants for those costs. In sum, participants had an opportunity and incentive to lie about how many puzzles they solved correctly and about the cost they incurred to come to the lab. The study manipulated whether the tax forms required participants to sign at the top or at the bottom or not at all. Okay, and then they had various results and they had various data anomalies that they detected. And some of the stuff they detected were data out of order. And what's interesting uh, of flagged data is when they had data in Excel files. And here is something that a lot of people don't know about current versions of Excel. I mean, of course, Excel has been around for a long time. Um, <laughs> so I go back to Excel 2003, but of course that's not the oldest version of Excel that exists. But the current version of Excel, Excel files are XML. And XML files, if you, um, how shall I say it? I, okay, so I'm going to take a little detour because this occurred recently. Um, oh, geez. Now I have to be circumspect. I don't want to say what company was involved in this, but company, if you're out there, I want to tell you trying to lock down your models in Excel files um, when you should be sharing this information with everybody um, was futile. Uh, password protection doesn't protect much because it's very easy to remove passwords from Excel files. I am not going to tell you how to do it. Anybody can Google or Bing or whatever. There are so many, there are so many web pages. There are so many, it, it takes just a matter of minutes uh, because what, what you really do is you realize that your Excel files are really just XML structures. And when you go into that, each sheet has its own structure. You can go into the code as a text file. You can find the specific line where the password is embedded and you, you can't read, by the way, I can't read the password. By the way, it's it's got a hash and stuff, so I have no idea what the password is. Doesn't matter. I just delete that line and now the password is removed. The spreadsheet is completely unlocked. And I can do that for every sheet that you have locked. I can write code that does this and go and it's all gone. There is no sp spreadsheet uh, protection anymore. There's no password locking. And I can read the whole thing. Do not do this. Excel is not secure. Why you think this is protecting anything is very big pain in the ass. Don't do this. 
If you want things to be secure, do not put it out on the internet for crying out loud. And then, well, we can't secure anything. Well, no, you cannot. Okay? So just stop it. Anyway, and that's, that's me being cranky for today. Um, so one of the things that if you have worked with Excel for any amount of time, you have to know they don't do all calculations simultaneously. Some calculations are based on other calculations. It has to keep track what order things are done in. And so there is something called a calc chain, calcchain.xml. So calcchain, and I'm quoting them from Data Colada, calcchain tells Excel in which order to carry out the calculations in the spreadsheet. So it tells you which cells to calculate in which order. Okay, so CalcChain is so useful here because it will tell you whether a cell or row containing a formula has been moved and where it has been moved to. That means we can use CalcChain to go back and see what this spreadsheet may have looked like back in 2010 before it was tampered with. And that's because there are cells with formulas in them. Because there are cells with formulas in them, you can see how uh, rows have been moved around and they were able to detect which rows were moved where. And they have been able to go into the file and see how things were sorted. So what was the original file looked like? And they were able to find what was moved around and how data were moved around. So that was the first kind of tampering with the original data they found. And the reason why they say this when they see that things were moved around, you're going like, well, what does it matter that things were sorted? It's because that the data were changed then. The, they were sorted to try to hide that the results were actually changed um, in any case. Uh, so that's one item. Uh, the other item, so part two, now, part two doesn't really use so much uh, in terms of aspects of Excel. It uses some statistical detection of fraud. And the statistic statistical detection of fraud is weird answers, and that weird answers were duplicated in the data file. And I've had an ex I've had this kind of experience myself looking at survey results and wondering if a survey provider who was providing um, the people who were answering my survey, uh, if they falsified data to us. The thing is we have multiple columns where I can get IP address and other things and I can check things out and see how credible these responses look. So then I start digging into other aspects of the data to make sure I'm, they're not statistically falsifying. So this looked like um, they were doing a copy paste of responses to get the overall survey result, or I should say um, study result, over the statistical uh, result they wanted for the overall study. So what happens is you start out with the actual data from your study and then you overlay data points with, you just, you know, flip a bit as it were 
from the negative result that you didn't want to the positive result you do want. So all you have to do is change a certain number of responses so that you get the P value as it were that you want. And so let me explain what this one is. And this is part two, my class here is Harvard. Um, and they really had to do a lot of work, uh, the data clada people, to discover this fraud. So in this paper, the authors presented five studies suggesting experiencing inauthenticity leads people to feel more immoral and impure. Um, therefore, they will lie. Okay, that's the concept. Um, so the thing is the anomaly in the data. And so this is the thing is like, they're not looking at the end response. They're looking at, is there something else in the individual responses that might indicate something has happened with the data? Um, so there's demographic responses, like what's your age, gender, year in school. So it's the year in school answer that was odd. And so the thing is, the year in school was open-ended. It wasn't like, okay, here's a drop-down or something like this. Uh, they retrieved the data from the Open Science Foundation. Um, and it was open-ended so they could answer stuff like uh, what their graduation year was going to be, one, two, three, four, junior, sophomore, you know, stuff like that. But some of them answered Harvard which is a really weird answer to year in school. Um, as they say, it is difficult to imagine many students independently making this highly idiosyncratic mistake. Nevertheless, the data file indicates that 20 students did so out of a sample size of 491. And of those in this posted data set, they're all in this argued the other side, um, like where they want uh, the result to be predicted high versus predicted low. And that where they ended up evaluation of cleansing products is like scoring a seven versus scoring one. They, they ended up in extreme positions essentially um, versus somewhere in the middle, which is of course where most uh, results ended up. So why would these weird results end up? It looks like data tampering in certain respects. And so a couple things to talk about, you know, and to a certain extent, I took psych, you know, psychology 101 when I was in college, like a lot of people have to do, you know, like, oh, you got to take it. And we had to, you know, take these kinds of be subjects for these kinds of studies uh, where, you know, you go in and you answer a survey or it's a weird kind of, and weird, I can talk about that another time because this is going on long enough, um, a weird kind of study. And the issue for a lot of these is they're so contrived in terms of what they study and what the results can be. And probably most of these experiments have negative results in terms of nothing really is different between the quote control group and the experimental group. Um, and that's probably what happened in almost all of these cases. And to get a publishable result, if 
every single experiment done by researchers get a publishable result in psychology in these kinds of things. This is probably suspicious. Um, and this is the problem. Um, what you have is if you have researchers who know enough about statistics and then they know how to um, mess about with the data and they'll change the data, this is why they should post the data set before they do any analysis of the result. And then um, I think negative results should be published. And this is a problem. Um, they're rewarding too much of these pop psychology type of papers. And the, the bottom line in general, though, is that there's been a lot of rewards for these, oh yeah, that, you know, they lie in this case or, you know, oh, here's the effect of this kind of bias in the end, probably in almost all of these cases, there was no result. And I bet there were a lot of honest grad students and researchers who didn't, you know, did not tamper with their data are getting zero results. And the best thing they can do is basically data mine and really have to reach for any kind of result that's publishable and they get downhearted that you know here are these other people who are getting accolades and getting published and you know they're getting nothing and they're like oh well i guess i have to go into uh the real world maybe i have to work for a corporation i'll go work in marketing or I will actually have to go work for a nonprofit or do something else and I have to leave academia versus the people who are left are the ones who know how to play the game. And that's kind of bad for academia and it may have to be destroyed in terms of the you've got to get rid of these incentives for publication because it's almost if it's almost all trash in the social sciences like this, if they're pretty much, and it's not just the social sciences, by the way, perhaps in some of the hard sciences, and they do find fraud there too, in that you can't get results that are, you know, amazing enough to get published because a lot of the core science and the easy science has already been done. Well, you know, that perhaps the incentives are perverted in what is going on. Please rethink what is your goal, academia? Are you setting things up so that you are rewarding people who play bureaucracy, people who lie, and you are rewarding those who are going to falsify their data? Um, so, and it's, and it, as I said, it's not just social sciences. You are, if you are pushing that you have to publish a certain volume in this, that, and the other, the quality of the research that's going out there, you have to question that. Um, so it's very different on the business side. I said I would mention what kind of research I do. I, you know, I work in insurance research. Well, I look at, you know, financial results from the entire U.S. insurance industry. You know, I focus on life insurance specifically, but I have to look at what's actually there. And 
some of the kinds of things I've done. So that's, you know, my day job, but I also do volunteer work with the American Academy of Actuaries and the Society of Actuaries. And we'll look at stuff like mortality trends, like data science applications for actuarial work. And some of the things that I've done over the years was like, you know, what's the correlation with equity markets performance and interest rates? And I'm like, I'm not seeing much of a connection here. Um, you can try different financial models and if they don't work, they don't work. Um, we're not publishing things for tenure. We're not, if I don't find anything, I'm like, well, I'm not using it because like, here's my data. It's just a blob. There's zero correlation or I didn't find a connection. I have published things where I'm saying I did not see an effect here. I didn't see an effect here, but I did see an effect there. Um, and then if you read my blog, sometimes I'm like, okay, let me go see. And I'm like, I don't really see anything sometimes. And that's just how it is. I'm not going to dig for, you know, one detail like, aha, I found a blade of grass. Nope. That's, I don't have to. Sometimes there's just no there there. Uh, <laughs> that's all there is to it. Um, I don't have to publish and perish. Uh, in some cases I do have reg regular publications. I do. However, for the longest time, it's, it's just that, nope, it's just chugging along. Sometimes that's what I have to report. And sometimes it's just way too exciting and I have to be selective about what I report about. So that's how it works. It's very different outside academia and I've been enjoying it. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. I'll talk to you another time.